Welcome to the Onyx Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dixie Cochran, here with Matthew Dawkins. Hello there. And Danielle Lozon. Hi. 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 <laughs> uh, this week we are talking about the world below. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yes, we're actually talking about the world below this week. Yes, as opposed to... Yes, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe listen to last week's episode. They will hear the part where you, you talked about how you didn't mean to record that episode. No, uh, it just kind you know, of happened. So, yeah, sometimes we have... I mean, uh, I guess there's historic precedent at this point for having a full episode be a complete tangent. Yeah, but, but like I like thought... that's somehow still on topic about gaming. It's kind of cool. Exactly. I mean, we haven't always hit that mark, have we? <laughs> We've sometimes no. just gone off on a tangent and spoken about any old random crap, but hopefully kept it entertaining. And uh, hopefully this week will be. Uh, if you, if at all you are interested in the world below, or if you aren't but are willing to become so, then maybe this episode will entice you. I'm like extra interested in the world below right now because I just started watching Silo on Apple TV. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. based on that book that I've mentioned on the pod- on on the podcast before, uh, Wool by Hugh Howey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, like every time we've talked about Pugmire and what I think is happening at the end, this 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 will tie in. I promise you. Um, I've always said that I wanted to like do an end game of Pugmire where they, you know open a vault in the ground and there's people that have been living down there for like thousands of years uh which is kind of the premise of wool is that for for some reason everybody lives in an underground silo yeah right like 144 story deep silo uh and it's it's the plot of the story to find out why and how and etc so i'm not going to go into that but they did just adapt it to tv and i started watching it and it's real good y'all so I'm thinking more and more about living underground right now. <laughs> uh, it's always uh, always a possibility. I understand there are still some preppers out there in the United States. I mean, as we saw in The Last of Us, that was probably the most viable option for surviving the apocalypse for a isn't long time. It, isn't it awful, though? You know, the, the best way of surviving an apocalyptic event is to be a gun-toting libertarian asshole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was played by he was played by Nick Offerman, so that's okay. It 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 was the main thing that made him more endearing, I think, because mm. Nick Offerman's giggle is uh, uh infectious. It's very mm. good, yes. Uh that said, the world below is not uh a modern day fallout style silo event, as far as I know. Although as no. I said on, on the podcast before, I am not as familiar with it as I'd like to be because Enough of us work on these books that we're not all privy to every single thing everybody else is working on. Um, so can you give us kind of an elevator pitch about the world below, Matthew? And don't just repeat the one from our episode two years ago, three years ago, whenever. Yeah, it may have been <laughs> Do you even remember ago. that? No. no I have uh, it does. It would have a five-minute uh, <laughs> a five-minute capsule. So again, a fairly long elevator ride. Like also, a, a five-minute pitch where you're constantly going like, "Oh, oh, wait," and then because you're thinking of a cool new thing you can add to it. Yeah, frankly, I'm disappointed we didn't go with Eddie's barn raising game, but instead we went for the world below. So, <laughs> <laughs> I I want to say that I keep being told that I have some of the best game pitches on there, and no one's made any of my games yet. So I guess that's up to me. I guess I guess I'm supposed to. Well, yeah, yes. I, I, I did. I did uh, have to hammer the point home with Rich. Uh, this this idea has really got legs. It was what I kept saying until he said, "Fine, <laughs> do something." That, that's right, basically kid. his face. So, yeah, see what you can do. <laughs> I like your kid. You, you just became spunk. like J. Jonah Jameson for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> you got attitude. You're a loose cannon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Bring um, me drafts of role playing games. <laughs> Bring me Ashcans, all the Ashcans. <laughs> uh, so the world below elevator pitch uh, sees your characters in a vast, ob- oh, you know, I'll start that again, in a vast subterranean world. Uh, this is not for most player characters your ancestral world. Uh, once upon a time, your ancestors lived in the world above, but those times are gone. No one can really define why, but at least. 
within the last handful of generations, people descended in a great exodus to the vast underneath, and that is where you exist now, trying to eke out a living. Uh, this is a game of survival, uh, but it is also a game of exploration, discovery, and wonder. Uh, there are certainly horrific elements that are present in this game because the world below is by no means uninhabited or was certainly inhabited when you arrived. Uh, by monstrous creatures and other sapient uh, beings. And some of them may well be content to coexist with you, others most certainly are not. Uh, you therefore have to carve out a home for yourself or defend the settlement that already exists that you may have grown up in, uh, while also trying to uh, sustain yourself and perhaps even find ways of flourishing. This can come through the mining of valuable ores, the uh, discovery, the unearthing of lost kingdoms, cities, temples, and so on. Uh, the wielding of impressive magical weapons infused with a uh, sort of primordial chaos, uh, and so on. Uh, by no means is it a game you can pigeonhole into a single, I guess, genre. Uh, there are lots of elements of different different kinds of games, different kinds of media in the world below, but cohesively it does make for a subterranean fantasy game where you play adventurous sorts who are trying to persist against adverse elements uh, while uh, making your people, your friends, your families uh, survive with you so that when your character inevitably dies or is forced to retire, you can pick up another person of the same lineage or household or peer group. Uh, so it's a game that, in theory, the protagonists through generations can uh, run for hundreds of years and you can change the world around you. Uh, or you could just play a single generation game where you're one character getting older and getting used to and mapping the ever-changing world around you. So, yeah, that's the world below in a snapshot. We've arrived at our 120th floor. It's just about to say it's the tallest building I've ever written. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we're currently going up the, what is it, the Hancock Tower. There you go. We're in uh, we're in Chicago right now. I see. That's that's uh, that's a very exciting tower, right? Thank you. Or the elevator is just really slow. Like yeah. my apartment's elevator yeah. is incredibly slow, so it's just like okay. Here yeah, we are. this is one of those old school ones where you've got to pull the shutter across and crank the handle yourself. We got stuck <laughs> on the elevator. We're waiting for the the fireman to come and rescue us. And, and you've got this guy trapped in there with you. He keeps telling you about his games. <laughs> <laughs> also, also Matthew's the one who's in charge of cranking the handle, and he just every now and then will just stop for a second Whoops. to like yes, elaborate. Sure. And, yeah. and let me tell you about this aspect of the world below. I think you would really find appealing. That's I remember, it, though. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I remember once we, uh, or I, I don't know whether I was with either of you, but I was at Gen Con in an elevator in one of the hotels heading to a place where you were about to host a panel. And there was someone in the elevator with me who was telling me all about how he thought Mummy the Curse should actually be. Oh, uh, no. He was saying, and this is what I would change, and this is what I would change. And it was a slow-moving elevator. I mean, it was only going two floors. But that, that felt like the longest ride in a lift. Uh, and I don't mind hearing about people's games, their characters, and so on. But I don't really like it when in a, in a confined space. I like to know that there is a way out. <laughs> Also, when they're telling you how to change a game that you're developing. Yeah, that was that was shortly after it had been announced, I think, that at the time it was you and I who were developing uh, oh, yeah. Mummy. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the... the Yes, the, the like, I love hearing about people's characters, I love hearing about their games, I love hearing their stories, not in a cramped space, and also not when you're telling me how to change my game or how to do it better. Yeah. Well, in, the, in this episode, Danielle and Dixie will tell me about how to change the world below. Um, <laughs> I've already told you how to do it better. Matthew. We've been talking. We've, we've, we've actually, we would like you to rewrite the whole thing from scratch. Sorry. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for all that we, you know, like to take the piss out of Matthew here a little bit, it is definitely, uh, I think it's cool that you can just kind of 
talk smoothly for a few minutes. I've, I've always thought that was cool. Uh, we talked about it before with your videos where you could just talk un, un, unblinkingly into a camera for like an hour. We're yeah, like, how, I'm practicing how? on the unbreathing side as well. Mm, mm -hmm. Oh, so you're going full vampire fish person of some sort. I think fish person is my current, uh, I guess, uh, what would you call it? Idiom. Uh, so the uh, I've moved on from the undead now, so I'm going full aquatic. I'm just the the intersection between vampire and fish person <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, though. Like, I feel like if you're gonna be like a non air breathing, cold blooded person, you can be both. We we have them in various vampire books already. One of the Requiem books that I edited a while back has a bunch of mer vampires in it. You'll be fine. I was running a game of uh, short tangent. I was running a game of Cthulhu the other day, and um, the one of the player characters is a surgeon, post Great War surgeon, uh, mm. who had been uh, practicing with skin grafts on uh, patients, uh, former soldiers who were injured during the Great War, and so this was very experimental medicine at the time mm -hmm. and uh, one of the NPCs who had been very badly burned, he said I'm going to uh, try and help you get better by performing some of these uh, experimental skin grafts including fish skin on you and it did lead to the remark, of course yeah, no one in a Lovecraftian story with fish skin has ever turned out to be evil <laughs> and, and naturally, the NPC in question is, of course, a dirty, rotten traitor who uh, isn't really burned, and this is just a false face they're wearing. But yeah, just thought, how blind can you be to want to give a man gills in a game of Call of Cthulhu? But I would welcome you... The way that Fishkin sounds when you say it as kind of one word uh, sounds to me, this is my ADHD brain just having a moment, uh, sounds to me like Pliskin. And that you're thinking about, like, they came from character based off Snake Pliskin, whose name is Hake Fishkin. Hake Fishkin. Who is a fish-oriented Snake Pliskin character. I mean, he could appear in They Came From The Danger Zone as an action hero who yeah. specifically hunts down large Piskeen. Uh, you know, the, the, if you go for the, the Mega Shark, the Meg sort of thing, Hake Fishkin could be our <laughs> quint. But anyway, the world below. Yeah, no, I, was, I, was, I was about to get back to it. I was putting a button on the tangent. No, I, was, <laughs> I was trying to put a button on my own tangent. But yeah, so um, as far as the setting goes, yes, it is all underground. It is fantasy. Uh, I'm assuming it is high fantasy with spells and things. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I didn't really go into the kinds of characters you play, but that is true. Uh, everyone in the world below has access to chaos, because chaos is effectively your magical element that exists in the world below. It is, I guess, almost like a natural part of the ecosystem down there. Uh, but it can also be manipulated for magical means. It also comes in solid crystal or rock form that can be used for lovely uh, as artifacts, as weapons, and so forth. Uh, and that means, yeah, everyone has the capacity for sorcery, but one of the callings in the game, which is, I guess, equivalent to a class uh, in one of our other story path games, because the world below uses story path ultra, uh, this would be like a role path, I suppose, mm -hmm. or your archetype path in they came mm -hmm. from. Uh, Different callings use chaos in different ways, and the one that has, I guess, the greatest capacity for chaos is the aptly named Chaosist, uh, who is someone who dedicates themselves completely to manipulating that strange stuff and therefore altering the fundaments of their reality and the reality of those around them. Mm -hmm. uh, for For... As is the way with wild mages in games past, uh, they aren't always the most well-liked or appreciated members of society, but they're often necessary when there's great big beetles bearing down on your habitat. That's the second time that you've mentioned large beetles uh, in reference to World Below on the Pathcast. So what is, <laughs> why, why beetles? Is they, I have heard that you could ride them. I would suggest they're probably the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Uh, okay, I mean, so there's uh, giant Ringo stars walking around. 
Yeah, yeah. Ever since Pete Best left the band and Ringo Starr came in, I mean, you can look back on some of their Hamburg records and say that was good, but it's all pretty derivative and poppy, very Chuck Berry-like back then. But yeah, bring Ringo in, at that point, you've got a meaningful threat in the world below. Um, Ringo is, of course, quite laid back as far as Beatles go, and no one's more laid back than George Harrison, I mean, especially now. Uh, oh, but... no! <laughs> uh, but no, in all seriousness, uh, yes, you can definitely ride the colossal bugs that exist in the world below. Not all bugs are colossal, uh, but the ones that are, the ones that aren't trying to eat you, uh, can definitely be tamed. Even the ones that are trying to eat you can be tamed and can act as mounts. I think part of the challenge when addressing an underground setting like the World Below or an underdark setting in Dungeons & Dragons is, yeah. the, is the perception is often of very cramped corridors where you're constantly having to squeeze through movies like The Descent, you know, where you're having to pothole through and spelunk, I guess. Uh, through these primordial caverns that haven't been inhabited for, for eons, mm. except by blind ghouls uh, that don't need a great deal of room. But there's a, a lot of variety to the scenery in the world below, despite the fact it is underground. You have vast catacombs, you have massive chasms, uh, you've got fungi-lit... Uh, causeways, and uh, you even have the long extant roots from plants from the world above that, that imply that there is still life up there, at least in the upper strata of the world below. Uh, you've still got access to these roots. So, yeah, uh, you have these giant bugs, but you also have more monstrous entities in the D&D &D style, uh, we have, for instance, that we previewed on the blog, the uh, Clothar that are shape-shifting, sort of personality-eating creatures from the Abyss, which is, one might argue, the lowest stratum of the world below. Uh, and uh, us, just like you seem to be fleeing something from up above, or your ancestors did, these creatures seem to be fleeing something from down below. They don't seem all that keen on getting all the way to the surface but they aren't happy to meet you in the uh, in the way um mm. you have uh, lots of lovely vampiric beasties like the hemix hemexi <laughs> uh, I, I will one day pronounce that correctly the right time or the first time rather and mm. uh, that does uh define themselves by families and they all have very different objectives. They are like an aristocracy of the underground. They're almost arachnid, almost crustacean, a bit of a mix between the two, and they've got a kind of a Byzantine appearance to them in the way in the sort of mm. armor and masks and so forth that they wear. If uh, if anyone listening hasn't seen the preview art that Rich Thomas did for uh, Inktober last year. Uh, we've posted it all over the Onyx Path blog on the World Below blogs that we're doing every Thursday. Uh, but you can also find them on Rich's Twitter uh, all throughout October if you want to scroll back. And the uh, Hemixi uh one of my favourite uh, parts of that. Uh, and yeah, uh, to be honest, the best theory, I don't want to go too deep into it at this stage, but it is a, and I'm sure Danielle will attest, a rather expansive uh, look at potential monsters. Maybe a little too expansive, one might argue. Um, no, you know, I think monsters kind of tell the story of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what kind of creatures do you run across um, helps kind of define what the world looks like but yeah you get to a certain point where it's like maybe we just do a monster manual yeah <laughs> totally like you want enough in the you know core thing to make them to to populate the world right because a big part of what characters do in a lot of these games is fight monsters yeah mm, but you don't yeah. want so many of them that it's like oops all monsters yeah yeah uh, that's the thing. I don't. Some monsters can uh, can exactly be the random encounter that needs no mm -hmm. contextual meaning, uh, but others uh, work best as I wouldn't call them plot devices, but elements of plots. Where if you see one of these things, that 
tends to mean something about the stratum that you are on or the i guess the ward uh wards are like planar effects and portals that exist throughout the world below that a ward that you might be approaching mm -hmm. uh, that some of these monsters may be gathering closer to that kind of thing than others so to go back to that discovery and exploration element of the game you aren't just looking at the the i guess the ores buried in the walls and how soft the earth is and how rich the iron might be here and and how breathable the air is you're also looking at the ecology of the locations you happen to be in uh you are looking at what kind of creatures gravitate to this place what does it tell us about this place is it at all habitable is there any negotiation that can be made between us and these creatures? Because a lot of them are quite intelligent, or, or are more intelligent than you. And one of the one of the key elements of the world below uh, is what I kind of consider the refugee element, which mm -hmm. it's almost a refugee um, quandary, if you like, in the sense that your characters are not in the world below by choice. This is not your home. Uh, at least, again, for the majority. You can play characters who are descended from people who have been in the world below for a long time. That is a playable option right from the start. But I would say that the default is, is the opposite. And so you have this... I guess, ancestral guilt that may or may not be justified because if the rumours are true, if the stories are true, your ancestors des descended to the vast underneath because they had no other option. It was that or die. And with that kind of mass migration, that kind of exodus, comes a great deal of displacement, resource shortage, and increase in threats of many other kinds. And as the generations expand and go on and drift further and further away from the initial exodus, the any kind of, I guess, communal guilt or, uh, I guess, feelings of an obligation to be reciprocal or, or grateful and so on start ebbing away. You start thinking, I'm just as entitled to this place as the people who were here before me. And I, it's actually a really deep and, of course, quite troubling topic because we see it in our own world. Uh, there's plenty of people who, if we look back 600 years, uh, would have said that settling the Americas was either divinely mandated or it was what we had to do at the time. We had to map the world and so on. Lots of people would make justifications for it, but we also know there were absolutely terrible uh costs for doing so uh the vast majority of them the choice of the people who decided to come along and colonize and and rip uh the the wealth and people from their homes now you look at another place where people may have been driven away from their homes because of war or plague or famine or whatever and they've got to go somewhere and one can certainly say that those people's neighbors have a an ethical obligation to lend some assistance. But at what point uh, do the people taking you in, um, at what point can they say, well, we can't tolerate this anymore. Our resources are stretched too far. You are inhabiting our ancestral homes. You have defiled our temples. You have pushed us to the fringes of society because there are fewer of us than there are of you. And we can't match your rate of of expansion. So mm. it's as I mentioned, it's a deep question. I think it's a, it's troubling, and it's not necessarily something everyone is going to want to address in their games of the world below. And you don't have to. But as a underbelly sort of message or question, I find it quite a thought provoking one for a game, uh, and one that I believe has been has been written pretty well to address that so that there's no easy answer um but yeah uh, it means that when you look at the monsters in the world below what of course most characters are going to consider monsters a great many of them were here before you 
And so, of course, they are pissed off. Of course, they want to take what's yours. And, of course, they're going to see you as a food source. Uh, or they're going to be angry because you're eating their food source. Is there a way of harmonizing? Uh, that's, I guess, a question for the people playing and running the game. Uh, but it's not necessarily one we could answer up front, because I think you've got to make that discovery yourself. Mm, totally. I feel like there's a bleakness in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel like the world below is a, is a darker game than, you know, just the, I mean, clearly it's dark. <laughs> like, there's only mm -hmm. so much light in the world below, but in a sense it is, you know, it's not that light airy fantasy of, you know, it, it is, definitely hitting on some deeper themes of uh, displacement and what does it mean to be part of a community? And, you know, I kind of want to talk about, I think you are burying a lead here. Um, you're talking about a lot about the setting, which is cool. Uh, but you're burying a lead here that I think is really compelling about your game, which is the calm phase. Oh, please go ahead. Um, which this game is about exploration. It's about survival, but it's also about community building. Um, and I would venture to say that because of how much emphasis is put on what we call the calm phase, that it is as much a community building game as it is an exploration game. Um, and, and when I say community, I don't, you know, yes, you, you kind of do stuff for the settlement, but the concept of what is, what makes a community, um, what, who, who belongs in a community, how do communities form? What, what do you do for the good of the community? How do you bring people into the community? How do you handle other people who might need help. All of those are, I think, poignant questions that this game has a way of, of talking about, especially because the calm phase, I'm not going to get super detailed into like the mechanics of it, but essentially, you know, one of the things Matthew was talking about is that you, you go out, you adventure, you maybe map the world you're in, or maybe you go look for resources or you deal with some kind of issue. And then you come back to your settlement and something happens that forces you to stay there. And this could be a generational thing. So the next time you go out could be the next generation of explorers, or it could be just a continuous thing where it's your same characters uh, going out again. Mm. Either way, the calm phase is so named because it is a, a point in time where you're forced to stay in one place and take in the community itself and deal with community level issues. Yeah. And so it's not always, you know, happy and light and you can just ignore this element but I would suggest not because I think one of the appeals of this game is that community building aspect at least to me um because you're dealing with the the, the ills of a community the the strife of what happens when people are forced to stay together for a, a long period of time um and traveling isn't easy or trade isn't coming, or resources run low. And I think that that's really compelling because where the game is dealing with dark themes and has kind of a darkness to it, this community aspect has a lot of that kind of more hopeful aspect of building something where everything else is kind of bleak. So, based on that, and I, I, I want to get into the setting a bit more because, of course, the setting is very cool. Um, but so far, it sounds a little bit like uh, Kingdom Death, the board game, the board slash role playing slash miniatures game that costs like five hundred dollars. I don't know if any of y'all have played Kingdom. Uh, Death. I, I know of it. I know of it. I have not played it. I've seen some of the sculpts, and I've, um, I remember thinking, "Wow, that's a lot of breasts." 
Bob. Yeah, yeah. Like, the the miniatures are very not safe for work. They have they have made a choice with their art style and a choice in the sense of like HR Geiger slash pinups being a choice. Mm-hmm. Um I like it personally, but I, I don't own it, but I did play a few runs uh with some friends at one point. Uh it is not an easy game to get into. It's a game where you probably want spreadsheets and things, but what I, the 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 point I'm trying to make is that a lot of the game is about having a like hunt phase and then a settlement phase where you mm-hmm. worry about what's going on in your settlement. Um, yeah. Now, granted, the technology that you start with is like Neanderthal levels of technology, so it's probably a little different because you're not like you know magic users and stuff. But you are like you're you're going out, you're hunting a thing. There's a whole phase of the game that is that. Then you're coming back, you're dealing with a settlement. If your character dies, you can make a new character from the settlement. But if the settlement eventually gets wiped out, then the game's essentially over. Yeah. Um And that's 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 just something that I I enjoy that kind of play. I like generational play. Um, I know a lot of folks are familiar with. I uh, is it Birthright the setting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a a similar sort of thing where you're doing some like empire building and you know king, kingdom building. Uh, so yeah, like this is this is really interesting that you do have those those phases where you're out adventuring, but you're also at home because I think a lot of role players in general and like me as a GM uh, struggle with what kind of stories to tell, just like in your hometown mm. as the adventurers. You know, you're always making up a reason for them to leave. <laughs> Um, whereas, like, there's not as much to do in my brain at home, so I'll I'll probably get inspiration from this for my home games, even if I'm not running this right away. Well, I think uh, that, that I certainly drew a lot of inspiration from Pendragon, from Houses of the Blooded, A Song of Ice and Fire, the idea, each RPGs specifically, uh, specifically the idea of of kingdom building, of house building, and so forth. And I remember because I've I've ran a lot of Pendragon, a lot of players, no matter how interesting you try to make the quests, live for the winter phase in Pendragon because that's when they get to work with their family and uh, work on essentially tower defense mode. And mm-hmm. that's, that sounds like the settlement side of Kingdom Death in a, in a sense. The that idea of yeah, once you've finished hunting, you then need to go back home and make sure everything is still where you left it, and and bolster your fortifications and so forth. And that's that's something we're going for in the world below too with the calm phase. Um, but I think I really appreciate you bringing it up, Danielle, because there is a deliberate. I guess dichotomy there, mm-hmm. uh, but there is also a necessity to it. Uh, that idea to use the kingdom death phrase of having a hunt phase, having a phase where you need to go out and explore, it isn't just because you're young, precocious adventurers who want to go out for a wild old time. It is because at some point, the people in your settlement or community won't be able to leave for a duration because there's chaos storms raging or because there's a a monstrous army on the march or something like that. Everyone will need to batten down the hatches and outlast it, weather the storm. So that means your adventures are necessary. You will be going out to to procure some kind of necessary resource or to make a stable link with another settlement that maybe you lost contact with during the last calm phase. Maybe you have some secret tunnels that run from your settlement to theirs, which will allow the transfer of food or fresh water or something like that. And you need to reestablish them. So, yeah, uh, there's still lots of things you can do in both phases, and they do feed into each other, but uh, I I agree there is a certain bleakness to the game in the sense that, as you say, it is dark, but it also has hope. So mm-hmm. I... I wouldn't. I would never call the world below grim dark or anything like that. I've spent far too long now working on very, <laughs> very unrelentingly dark games, and I don't. I'm not really interested in exploring right. that right now. Uh, you could go that way with the world below, but that isn't. I would suggest the the story we are telling. It is a a story, I guess, of uh, contrast. Of yeah. yeah. You have the light of family, of community, of hope, of faith. Faith being, for the most part, a pretty good thing in a setting like this. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, but yeah, you also have the adversity, the trial, the the aspects of survival of living in a strange world that doesn't necessarily want you there. Yeah, I think uh, you know one of the things I think about in other games that do survival or limited resources or things like that is that um, they they emphasize how petty people can be. And how how much you're you know you justify fighting against another community because they have a resource you want, yeah, uh, taking from others rather than sharing with others. And I think one of the things that the world below does is it encourages that concept of one of you know your home phase may not be be for you may not come while you're in your settlement your mm -hmm. home settlement it could mm -hmm. it could come while you're in a different settlement it could come while you're in a small group of traveling folks that are stuck together in a cave that you you know have secured yeah um and so the the concept of working together for survival uh, as opposed to you know dealing with the the what sounds like the natural human inclination to be shitty to one another but mm. it's not necessarily right. always the natural human inclination in fact the natural human inclination is to help people when you see them in need yeah very much so um and so i think that this makes it feel more realistic to me personally because you know when everyone is just you know when, when you get stuck on an elevator together <laughs> with a group of people, <laughs> talking you don't, about mummy. Yeah, you don't you don't devolve into punching them out. You devolve into making jokes with each other and trying yeah. to ease the tension. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it is, you know, it kind of shows that in this game that when you get stuck in another community, those people will take you in, and you will help them out also because you're all in it together. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, kind of what I, I didn't write it down as this, but it's what I think of as air raid siren mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, you you are essentially under threat, and therefore, yeah, you need to band together. You need to all hold up the wall, uh, because if one of you slips, then the wall could come down. So everyone is everyone is necessary. Everyone serves a purpose. Yeah. Uh, and if if they are too young or too frail to to serve a purpose, then the reason you're holding the wall up is specifically for them because they can't do it themselves. Right. Yeah. So I I think that you know one of the as much as you know the uh, the idea of the monsters of the world below and the you know creepy crawlies and the uh, eating fungus and uh, fungus like caverns is kind of a a darker uh, aesthetic to place on what is ultimately kind of a cozy game. <laughs> I'm not calling your game a cozy game, but it it kind of has that you know community building element, and and even when you go out adventuring, it's often to go gather resources or to find mm. something important or to reconnect, you know, reestablish a settlement, which are all positive things not mm. just oh you know we heard there are monsters in a cavern two caves over and we are going to go clear them out that may be a thing that happens but that's not it it is not a dungeon delving game in that sense well yeah like i think most games that that i tend to run or enjoy playing do their best when they have some kind of mixture of you know cozy wholesomeness and fighting giant monsters yeah that's part of why i think i'm so drawn to games like like Fugmire. you know you have these like wholesome scenes back home and then you can have these you know post-apocalyptic underground fights and it sounds like the world below is, is doing a similar thing without the you know anthropomorphic animals as main characters uh just in that like you you, you could go out you can do these fights horrible things can happen but then you can come back, you know, at the end of the day or the month or the year or whatever and deal with your your home or someone's home where you're yeah. in a lot less danger. 
And yeah, and throughout the world below, you will encounter places and people like that because I think the. Uh, so I enjoy a dungeon crawl, but I also acknowledge that adventures that lack NPCs lack a certain something for me. Uh, I need the social interaction, and at some point, I find mm -hmm. it dries up between player characters because you often need the narrator, the GM, the story guide to have someone giving advice or threats or something like that. And if you're just hitting mindless monster after mindless monster, that can get tiresome for me. So that's why the world below has multiple settlements. It doesn't have hundreds of them by any means, but it has multiple settlements of various different societal stripe and hierarchy structure and so forth on different strata. Uh, you've got guilds that exist throughout and across them, uh, and uh, sometimes these guilds will send dispatchers across the world below to transfer messages or important treasures and so on to their various troves and archives. Uh, there are priests and or holies, as they're called in the world below, of the various faiths that have been founded or discovered in the vast underneath, and more. The point being that this isn't a game where you should be embarking upon an adventure and basically saying nothing during right. the adventuring phase. Um, I do agree that the when you're back home during the calm phase or during your adventuring uh, season, you just happen to spend a lot of it in your settlement. Of course, that's where you're going to interact with most people. But the world below is not uninhabited. There will always be intelligent creatures for you to interact with. Some will be hostile, some will be friendly, some will be absolutely neutral, or want to know what you have to offer them. Uh, the idea being that this is a colourful and diverse world with lots of interesting characters with lots of very interesting beliefs. And your character's perspectives may change. You may find someone that you want to take back to your settlement because your settlement needs someone like this. Uh, and they are without a home because maybe their settlement was destroyed or they lost it or something like that. So there's lots of options, um, both from a, I guess, a perspective of what you do during Calm but also the kinds of people you're going to interact with on the road uh, during your dungeon delving. And yeah, they're not all going to be things for you to kill. Although, you know, killing will certainly be a part of this game because things are... there are hostile elements, but not everything right. wants you dead. So just so people can know a little bit more about this, because you talked a lot about themes and what you do on, on, on some level, but what's the rough, uh, like era of civilization um you know we, we, we could equate most fantasy civilizations to something in our history yeah. um and what's uh i don't want to go into like what happened to the world above because we talked about that on the blog and that's a setting secret <laughs> yeah <laughs> is, well it is not it, for 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 this podcast no the world below the world above is deliberately ambiguous um but the i guess tech level yeah. Also, like, just how how far is it from our world? I guess is my other yeah. Uh, it varies uh, across settlements, and this sort of ties into the mystery of the uh, great exodus that led people to this place. You have uh, some settlements and communities that are, are fully functioning democracies, with I would suggest Renaissance levels of, I guess, technology and understanding, who see chaos and the creatures around them purely as, I guess, scientific phenomena uh, that they wish to codify. This is where the guilds, I guess, are mm -hmm. at their strongest. And you could range all the way back to, I guess, what you might consider a uh, Egyptian, Greco-Roman uh, style in some others, which are very faith-based with very strict hierarchies, you know, a sort of uh, central autocracy. Uh, and likewise, they will probably have, I wouldn't call it a monoculture necessarily, but a they will have they will be more easily defined as let's say a warrior culture or as say a cult like culture uh, whereas the more advanced groups tend to be more liberally minded when it comes to diversity 
So, or diversity of thought specifically. Uh, so, in short, it varies. Uh, the easiest answer, though, is to say it straddles medieval and renaissance. So, you're not going to be seeing people firing guns. Uh, you will be seeing people cladding themselves in armor, tending to be from carapaces and and chitin and the like. Uh, although forges do exist, it's just they create a lot of toxic fumes, and in many places there's nowhere for those fumes to go. Uh, so, yeah, most weapons, most armor are made out of the remains of other things, uh, but the... The guilds possess the knowledge of how to, let's say, uh, craft steel um, or glass. But having the technology and the clean air and clean water and so on to do so entirely depends on where you are in the world below. And also your access to things like chaos, which can alter your capacity to, to affect that kind of tech level. Uh, you may be in an absolutely revolting, almost nigh uninhabitable, let's say, uh, stratum for some reason. I can't think why, but let's say you are. And everything around you is radioactive, it's disgusting, but if you have a really powerful chaosist in your pack, mm. or multiple chaosists, and other um, characters of other callings, you might be able to start actually changing the environment around you. You might be able to start purifying the water. You might start making this toxic lichen edible, uh, and so on. So, yeah, it does vary, but it's a good question because I've, I've seen it. I think I saw that come up on RPGNet as well, someone asked. And uh, I, it's something oddly... When I think of fantasy games, I rarely even question that. I think because so many default toward that broad, what we call medieval period, which is a very nebulous term. Yeah. Also, like how uh, the things that look medieval are actually Renaissance and yeah, like, exactly. eh, you're fine. Like anywhere between 1066 and the death yeah. of Queen Elizabeth is apparently medieval. <laughs> Of course. Even though we have yeah. this whole thing called the Elizabethan era. Wh whatever, sorry. I, I'm European history nerd. I'm just going to go over here now. Well, <laughs> and, and that's the thing. Looking at something from a Western European uh, view is, of course, very different from looking at it from a Chinese view exactly. at the same time. Uh, or, or a thousand years earlier, or what have, uh, what have you. Lots of our historical eras overlap or sort of take places in the sort of great race towards civilization. But uh, that is the that's the case in the world below as well. This is how magic or sorceries through chaos form a fundamental part of the setting. They aren't just things that make fireballs uh, that you can use to black people. Uh, these are uh, these are magical powers that enable you to change the lifestyles of those people you are caring for. Which means you don't just drop your calling at the door when a calm phase starts. Um, starts. Right. You right. are still your character, even when you're in downtime, as as you might call it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna kind of um, with me on the segue here. Um, have <laughs> okay. you have you previewed any of the guilds on the uh, on the blog yet? No. Okay. There is a guild, the Gastrovores, which I find. Extremely compelling. You want me to talk about them, or do you, well, would you like to? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, I mean, people can kind of maybe guess from the name, but the context of them are uh, that they are. Doesn't that just mean that they eat food? Yep. Yes. Okay. But, <laughs> right, but they are eaters. Right, they're they're eaters. Um, but they they essentially make an entire guild out of finding and creating good food mm. which what no 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 i'm not disagreeing i'm oh. umming in, in, in agreement <laughs> yeah i'm okay. thinking of good food right now i know right <laughs> um which i think in a game that is ultimately about a little bit of deprivation makes a lot of sense one and two 
isn't something that normally you would think about in a, a game, right? Normally you don't think about, well, yeah, my characters are eating, but not what are they eating and how good does it taste to them? Mm. Uh, and how much does that, you know, reflect on how, you know, food is such an integral part of people's lives, right? We have to eat. Everybody has to eat. But when people get together in groups, it's always around, you know, like, let's go out to dinner together. Uh, you know, we have a party. It's a potluck. Um, you know, you, we have a cocktail party. We're having drinks. We are, uh, you know, we have a meeting at, at work. It's a big board meeting and they brought in lunch. Whatever it is, we congregate as people around food. And the fact that you have included this kind of thing is so cool. And that goes to the point of, you know, you may think like, okay, well, what am I going to do with a power that lets me purify food? Why do I care about it? Well, because the game says that you should care about it and that it's, yeah. it is important to not just survival, but your way of life. Yeah. The, so every, every character, every player, when they are creating their character, uh, assigns their character to a guild and you don't have to be a, an ardent uh, member of said guild. It's just, it is expected that you will work for a guild because it's a good way of having security and also receiving dispatches to go here, there or everywhere. And yeah, the gastrovores also known as the kitchen also known as the eaters. Uh, the, it, the reason I came up with them and I guess I didn't think of them as any as a particularly novel idea, but I confess that you don't see many groups like that in other role-playing games. No, yeah. That was a memory I had of when I was small and I was over my one of my sets of grandparents' houses, and we had eaten like a, what, at least in the UK, is called a plowman's lunch. You know, just uh, pickles, cheese, bread, favorite. ham, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And Adult lunchable. Yeah, yeah. and, and there, there was food left. And I remember um, there was just a, a very small bit of cheese, a very small bit of bread left. I remember my dad saying to my granddad, oh, shall we finish that off now? There's not much left. And my granddad said, looking absolutely pleased as punch, Oh no! I'll have that. Um, I'll have that bit of cheese with a piece of bread tomorrow. That'll make a lovely lunch. And he looked absolutely in love with the idea, with something mm -hmm. so simple. And obviously, that's a generational thing because now we, being in our Western European, North American habitats, have access to a huge array of food. Uh, of of types of food, uh, you know, from all over the world, uh, it can be as exotic or as novel or as plain and fast foody as we like. But even fast food that we have today is not is certainly wouldn't have been considered plain thirty years ago or or fifty or sixty years ago. And that my granddad was taking so much. I guess, joy out of the idea of just having a bit of bread with a bit of cheese. And that would make a nice lunch. And I thought, in the world below, uh, you, you would probably have that kind of looking forward to the next meal mentality. That idea of... Oh, I remember the last time I tried one of these mushrooms. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to trying again. I'll keep that in my pack for tomorrow. You know? And having a guild built around that kind of mentality of we're not just trying to curate what, what food is safe, but we're also trying to, I guess, curate what kind of food is good. There is a modern... I guess take on that in the sense of epicureans of food tasters of people of restaurant critics and so on they definitely fall into that but they also fall into that part that says if you want to treat your family to something good during this calm phase if you want to look after them you need to ensure that you go out and pick up uh 
I guess, food with these vitamins in. You need to go out and find these flavorings, these things, these things. And again, it gives you a motivation, a reason to interact with the world around you. That I think can be lost in a dark fantasy game when you think of a guild called the Gastrovores or the Kitchen or something like that. You think of a bunch of, sort of macalarious vampires who are all sort of tottering around, um, <laughs> trying to hold themselves together. But the, I guess, charitable form of it, the the reason a guild like this would form, I think, is quite captivating. Um, so, and I certainly hope uh, that people playing the game think so. We are getting close to time, but this is so interesting to me, uh, partially because, you know, you, you started this off talking about how, like, people don't, you know, often think about this in role-playing games, and I had to do that thing where you have to divorce your, like, one recent experience from your overall experience, because <laughs> mm-hmm. my one recent experience in the game I'm running is one of my characters uh, is a is a mushroom farmer who talks about food all the time. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, what? It's normal in games. And it's like, no, that's normal in this game. Uh, but that is actually a really cool concept. I like I like it when games that uh, have a like fighting or hunting aspect have something to do besides kill animals. Yeah. You know, or or monsters or whatever. Because uh, there is a lot more to do out there. Like this is this is giving me some like uh Cavaliers of Mars vibes too. Yeah, uh, I, I know that that is definitely fair. I I hugely appreciate Cavaliers of Mars. I think it is a obviously it's a short game line as far as some of our game lines go, but it's so yeah. rich, so richly drawn. And yeah, that it's there's obviously an alien quality to what's going on in the world below. Uh, just as there is in Cavaliers of Mars, uh, it's our, it's almost our world but different. I would say the world below is mm-hmm. our world, but certainly more fantastical. There's some carryovers, such as some of the deities, some of the faiths that exist in the world below. You could easily, well, even by name, match to some of the gods that appear in in the mythologies of our world. Right. Um, but they're not all necessarily from the same region or from the same culture, so how that is explained in the world below is, I guess, one of those mysteries. Um, but yeah, uh, good call bringing up Cavaliers of Mars, because I think, maybe subliminally, uh, I would have been channeling a little bit of that. Uh, yeah, it feels with... tonally similar. Yeah, well, it's that adventurous attitude, Yeah, I think. the That idea that characters aren't going out with grim lines on their faces where their mouths used to be thinking well time to kill another giant stag beetle uh they're going out because yeah they need to they need to reap the harvest they Mm -hmm. need to they need to collect the resources and maybe they need to collect some trophies and they need to expand uh, their settlement, or they need to find some treasures in a temple that maybe they unearth- they unearthed the spire of that temple last yeah. season. Now they and, want to find out what's underneath. Yeah, and just to put a, a little bit of a, a button on some of the things I've been saying, when I'm comparing this to other games that I enjoy, it is not meant to say that this game is like derivative or no, you know, no, uh, not, don't not worry. interesting. It is well, no, this is for the listeners more than you, because I okay. know that you know. Um, but, you know, everything is a mix of the things we like from other things, uh, coupled with some new ideas. And so I get really excited when I start hearing about, like, oh, this reminds me of this, or reminds me of this, like, this reminds me of all these things that I like kind of mooshed together into one thing, because uh, that makes the one thing more exciting to me. I uh, see so that's, that's, that's kind of why I keep making those comparisons. But yeah, so we are, you know, about ready to wrap up. Is there... Anything that you didn't talk about, Matthew, because we kind of just, you know, covered a couple of topics, uh, largely, that you wanted to say before we wrap up on The World Below. And I'm sure we'll talk about The World Below more in the future as we get closer to uh, its impending doom. (laughs) I hope not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's impending impending exploration, illumination. Uh, the the main the other thing, and it's something that we did cover when I initially pitched it, 
and I won't cover it in great detail now, uh, when we had our episode all those years ago and we did our five-minute pitches, long ago. Uh, was the concept of the well. And so I won't talk about it much because I have spoken about it before and I will no doubt speak about it again. But the idea that chaos is believed to emerge from this well, which is at a deep level of the world below. And the people living closest to the well have used this power to extend their lives, give themselves powers untold, all that good stuff. Uh, and of course they are quite controlling over who else gets access to this power. And so it sets forth the more, I guess, where the nature of exploring and calm are quite a character-driven uh, side of the game. The well is a an existential uh, threat and, I guess, lure in the game. Because this is the promise of great power. This is the promise of immortality. This isn't the kind of thing the average person is going to involve themselves with. They know it's there. They're quite happy knowing it's there. They're, or even they dread the fact that it's there, but they're never going there. And they don't want to hear about it. But some characters will want to. Some characters are going to want to wrest the power of oh. the well for themselves, for their communities, for equality, for the sake of spreading it throughout the rest of the world below so that it's no longer controlled by a single party or council or what have you. And that really appeals to my political sensibilities. Uh, the Again, that quandary of, let's say you get hold of this power. Now what do you do with it? Do you have the responsibility to share it out? Can you mm -hmm. share it out before someone steals it from you? Do you only give it to people who you think are deserving of it? Do you keep it to yourself because you think you're the only people responsible enough to dole it out? And does that doom you to become exactly the same as the last people who did? All of that good stuff kind of analyzes that idea of revolution and revolutions that are betrayed by the people who, I guess, lead them. Uh, and yeah, the, the the fallout from things like that. That is the subject of, I guess, a much broader, longer campaign of the world below, rather than the day-to-day -day existence that we've been talking about for most of this podcast. But I enjoy that the game has that much range, that you can go all the way from simply, well, this session is all about finding some edible lichen. And maybe you have to kill a creature or drive it uh -huh. off or trade for it. Uh, but that's all the session's about. All the way through to we want to topple the powers that be and then make the grand decision of, well, what do we do with the power now that we have it? That That is, for me, one of the most appealing things about The World Below as a game, that you have that much range of, I guess, that much scope of gameplay. But yeah, that's that's it. That's it for me, really. That's awesome. I... What about you, Danielle? What about you? I, um, you? You've raised some wonderful points that I would have n not even remembered to mention. Um, is there anything you want to mention before we wrap up? You know, I, and mm, you mentioned the well, which I was going to say if you hadn't. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that there is. Um, <laughs> well, that was I'm easy. Looking, yeah, I'm looking <laughs> forward to to people being able to see the full game and give it a try. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can only do so much with these previews and things, you know. And then it's like, well, you know, just go go look at it once it's available to you. <laughs> yeah, and definitely, if this if what we've spoken about has appealed to you, do check out theonyxpath.com. Every Thursday we do a World Below blog, and if you've missed mm -hmm. any of them, just click mm -hmm. on the most recent one, click on the World Below tag that is on that blog, and you'll be able to find all of the historic ones. I'm sure Dixie can add a link to I'll that tag page. Yeah. Indeed, in the schnotes. Yeah. Uh, but there is also a thread over on RPGNet uh, where people have been discussing it. Uh, we have a server on our Discord dedicated to the world below and there's a forum on our channel on not a server forums. but yeah uh, yes yeah, sorry channel on the server <laughs> um oh how foolish of me there's uh, a whole world below fan server i just don't even know about you're like uh, don't let dixie in why didn't they invite me 
<laughs> they never invite the devs. They just the fans just make their own little space. Yeah, and in a way, that's for the best, isn't it? We don't need to yeah. be there to to curate uh, the game for fans. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like we're done then. Yeah. So if anybody wants to find you, talk to you about the world below, Matthew, where can they do that? MatthewDawkins.com on Twitter at DawkinsMP or on the Onyx Path Discord or any of the other men- places I have just mentioned. Danielle. Uh, you can find me on the Onyx Path Discord, or you can find me at daniellozon.com. Yeah, you can find me at Dixie Cyanide pretty much everywhere. Uh, I'll, I'll always on the Discord, because of course, you can find us at the onyxpath.com, the Onyx Path on all social media. And as always, many worlds, one podcast. <laughs>